Okay, so what we're doing now is going to be nicer for people who, who flew out here than the remote, but we'll try to make it, copy it for you as well. We're going to do um, the session on, quote, populating the uh, framework. What this is really about is example case-based analysis. And we're trying to, and I think the goal of the session, if we can achieve this goal, is to create a better understanding of the space of ontologies and uh, essentially refine our understanding of the dimensions by putting down placeholders, like discrete points on these dimensions that matter, that are useful. I would argue the objective function for the whole exercise is useful for explaining to people in the general public what we're doing, what we mean. Uh, so if, it, if a distinction helps a lot to show that, to help explain what the, the science engineering of ontology engineering is, then it's a good candidate for the distinction, yeah. Tom, Todd Schneider. Quick point, could you reiterate the goal of the framework succinctly? Yeah, I think the goal of the framework is to identify uh, a set of dimensions that whose qualities, whose measure, units of measure elucidate or, explain, or illustrate, rather, um, what, it, how, what, is, what does it mean to be an ontology that's an inclusive way, that's inclusive without being diverse, without being incoherent. So in other words, if we, we have this, this n-dimensional space, this cube, we're going to have a lot of dots inside the cube. And that you're going to, people are going to be able to know what an ontology is by saying it's in this cube and also by all the examples. So some people just know by examples. Some people know by the analytics. That's the goal. That wasn't very succinct. Sorry. <laughs> okay. So first up to bat is Ken, who's going to talk about the survey results now. From a, he, you heard his, re, his overview this morning. Um, he's now going to talk about and sort of run through the examples that people proposed of ontologies. So our job, this is active ch uh, session. While Ken's doing that, think of propose, uh, say that was a good one. Like that's a good example of a taxonomy or whatever it is. And we want to come up with like a dozen exemplars that sort of scattered throughout this cube so that we can now get a handle on what we're talking about. Now, you've got uh, as much time as you need, except I'm going to go, and start yawning or something if it goes too slow. How's that? Just do whatever it takes to get, to get through it. Okay. I, it, it's actually going to be in a number of stages. So let's get the, let's get the slides up. And so go to slide two. Uh, first, I'll give you... Review for those who maybe haven't, weren't here in the morning session of the communities involved. Um, then what I'm going to do is um, go through basically first the, the terminology that I found in the, in the, um, the uh, survey was as diverse as the communities, it seems. There were some ontology languages, some terms that are essentially synonymous with ontology and finally, their actual ontology artifacts. And I think it would actually be a useful exercise if we might pull out a couple of examples from the early categories, ontology languages and terms for ontologies, and see whether our framework will work for those as well. So move to the next slide, number three. Uh, as I say from this, this morning, there were at least six members of the 15 listed in the survey and 19 other communities. And there were also a separate notion of community representative. So some people actually felt that they could represent their community. And uh, 
24 communities had at least one representative. And of course, of course, many, many communities overlap with one another, so it might actually be much better than that. Okay, and if you click on that, uh, don't do that. <laughs> but if, if, if you're online and you can click on this link, then you will see uh, the actual communities and uh, the information about it in the wiki. So move to slide number four. Uh, the answers to the four questions, which I talked about this morning, values, issues, problems, and solutions, are all also on the wiki. Uh, in one case, the full answers are listed, and those are, sub, those are actually organized by community so that you can see, in each case, attitudes for, you know, that, that particular communities had because communities did differ from one another in terms of their attitudes toward ontologies, ranging from, of course, formal people who thought it was the greatest thing in the world to uh, another uh, community where uh, I believe one of the comments was ontology in my community is a dirty word. So now moving to slide number five, uh, the first list here is ontology languages and meta languages. So these are, these are various languages at the level of say uh, uh, OWL or uh, common logic, those, those kinds of levels. Um, actually not all of these were in the um, in the uh, survey itself, I had to kind of glean them from various comments and places where people were uh, talking about the, uh, the languages. And, and this is not a complete list by any means. I mean, I, I'm sure people here can come up with still more. There are a lot of languages for expressing ontologies, uh, some of which I had never heard of before, like ISO 15926. Perhaps somebody here uh, is from that community. Um, I hadn't realized that it was a an ontology language until the survey. Um, so these are various languages, uh, and I have links to all but one of them anyway, um, for uh, that give you more information about those uh, those languages. Um, moving to slide number six. Does it make sense to use our framework for languages? Well, so I started trying to fill some of these in. And I found that, well, structure doesn't really apply because that's really, an that's really a feature of a particular ontology, not of a language for expressing the ontology. Uh, expressivity, though, does seem to work really well, although at the time I had no idea what I was going to put in there. Now, uh, perhaps if we use uh, some of the suggestions that we've heard uh, this morning, uh, uh, one could put in some better, uh, something better than what I put in. Uh, granularity doesn't seem to apply for, uh, for languages, um, at least I'm not sure. I mean, perhaps someone could correct me on that. Um, intended use, on the other hand, certainly does seem to apply. Uh, for instance, ER models uh, were clearly intended for databases. ISO 15926 was intended for oil and gas production facilities. Um, so the intended use uh, certainly seems to fit well for um, languages. Uh, reasoning fits. Um, prescriptive versus descriptive. I call that strictness in the in the column heading. Um, I, it seems like that works, but I'm not really sure. I mean, it, that may also be a feature of a particular ontology. Um, and finally, of course, there's design methodology, which I guess doesn't work here either. So here's some examples uh, of how the framework might be applied. Um, I don't know. Do you, would you like to uh, 
take one of these? Does the do you want to take a look at languages as a possibility? Audience? Yes. Go ahead. I would say that language, that the reason language um, seems to relate to intended use and reasoning is because they are factors in the same dimension, not that it necess- one necessarily describes or pertains to the other. But that would just, I, I would say that basically they, they both relate to context. You can't talk about the use of something without talking about how you're encoding it. And your language is necessarily, um, in, well, true, there, but there are greater or lesser degrees of encoding. Okay, but language is the encoding scheme. All of those are encoding schemes. Well, yeah, I mean, I I believe the representation kind of precedes reasoning, you know, so no reasoning without representation uh, as a buzzword or phrase. But but it's loosely connected, I think, because uh, you can indefinitely use uh, – they could be both related to the language, and they they have to in a necessary uh, uh, way. But for for an ontology, uh, whether you use reasoning or not – it maybe has more to do with your uh, application. So uh, it may be a little bit non-orthogonal here. Okay, I, I think – oh, one more comment? Yeah, yeah so uh, Michael Gruninger here. Uh, so the, there's a certain extent to which uh, properties like expressiveness are properties of a language, and every ontology will be written in a language, so the, the ontology kind of inherits – the expressiveness properties of the language. But I think as far as the, the framework is concerned, we're here to describe ontologies. And although an ontology language is one part of that description, it's not really the focus of I think we should, again, recognize, you know, that, yeah, there's a language and there's properties of languages, but let's focus on properties of the ontologies. Okay, I, that's good. So uh, let's move on to slide seven. Uh, I want to get to the survey. I think it, that's going to be more important. Um, Slide seven, uh, one aspect of the survey was um, terms synonymous or similar to ontology. Uh, and this is a, a little bit more amenable to our, uh, our framework. Uh, there were 41 terms that could be considered uh, similar to or equivalent to ontology. I, I ordered them and listed them in a number of ways with reference links. Uh, there's also a spreadsheet form uh, format. Um, these are just, well, let's go to the slide number eight so you can look at some of these. Uh, just to list them uh, together with the number of times that they uh, appeared in the, um, in the survey. So uh, business rule design, classification, concept system, content models, controlled terminology. Those are all just different ways of talking about something that uh, really is a, we should include, I suppose, as an ontology. In, uh, in our framework. Um, move to slide nine. Uh, there's still others. It's all, this is all in alphabetical order. Um, so you, just looking over this, you can see quite a variation here. Formal ontology right next to glossary. Uh, slide number 10. Uh, one question is whether a schema should be considered an ontology. Actually, in the survey, Schema was followed by two question marks. There is, it is really unclear that a database schema is an ontology in as much as it doesn't really express any notion of 
uh, a concept, at least explicitly, possibly implicitly. Question, Question there. Uh, I'm, I'm still worried. Oh, does it matter whether something can be considered an ontology or not? I mean, isn't the framework supposed to allow us to put even the far-out things, which maybe most people wouldn't call an ontology, there's still a place for it in the framework, isn't there? Steve Ray, sorry. Okay, so and so that that's one vote for uh, keeping schema Wait. and keeping everything, in fact. Okay. Well, exactly, Todd Schneider. If we're not going to include everything, we have to exclude something. And where's the delineation? I would say we include everything. Uh, Peter. It's, no. it's a, it's a method. The idea is a framework, not, not the boundaries. Yeah. It's, a it's a methodological question again. I mean, we can probably spend several weeks on deciding what goes in and what goes out. I think realistically, in the time we've got this afternoon, there's only a couple of things we can do, which is we've got one proposal with seven dimensions. Right. Denise has countered with a suggestion for four others. I think the only thing we can do realistically, and I hope someone can, can, can do that on the fly, as a scribe can do that on the fly, is... Try as we go through these slides and through the presentation, the next four presentations as well, to try and see if that seven dimension or four dimension or any other axis holds up and why. And that we can then use that as a, as a way to then make that evaluation. If we start going to the evaluation now, we're going to get nowhere. I think we've just got to keep in our minds why we're making an evaluation so something goes in or out and then trying to map it to one of those axes. Exactly. Four Think of your favorite. If you have a boundary case like schema or whatever you want to talk about, now then our job in this session right now is to find the instance of that that you're going to use as your exemplar to argue for it or against it. Okay, so move to slide 11. Those are the last few. Slide 12. Now here's the, the big one. Uh, 70 ontology artifacts and placed in a spreadsheet form uh, the um, oh sorry this is the wrong slide to go to slide four, 13 this, these are the ontology artifacts uh, so slide 13 the, again on the wiki there are ontologies arranged by the term um, for the ontology you know, for ontology you know, uh, then an alphabetical list and a spreadsheet so slide 14 this is this this is the list of 70 uh, ontology artifacts. The first column is the name of the ontology artifact. The second column is uh, called an ontology. So people rated this each on, each ontology on a scale of one to five. Uh, in some cases there was no answer, so you'll see blank there. Um, and in in some cases people disagreed, so you'll sometimes see 0.5. To indicate that there was some said a, some said one and uh, some said another, and uh, five means that it is definitely an ontology. One means that it would be, rarely be considered an ontology. So those are the uh, that's the second column there, and then the remaining columns are the seven dimensions that are on the um, that we, we were just talking about in the framework. So what I would like to ask people to do now is suggest some ontologies that we can we can then have a session and proceed to place them in this multidimensional framework. So I think about a dozen of them. Does that sound good? No, no, I have one clarif 
clarification. On the survey, uh, it actually the question actually was called an ontology. So, so it wasn't quite something that people consider or not consider as an ontology, but rather in a particular constituency, do people call these things an ontology? Uh, I, I right. think there's a, a sort of a slight difference. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. Yeah, it's CAO, called an ontology. Okay, it's not an evaluation of it. It's not whether it is or isn't an ontology. It is whether someone calls this an ontology. Thank, thank you, Peter. So uh, are there any suggestions at this point? We want to try to you know, get a good representative sample of these because I don't think we can do all 70 in the, uh, in the amount Before of time. Before we do... Uh, um, can you scroll it? It's, no, it's all on one slide. What you need to do is uh, right-click on the... Oh, gosh. If you right-click on it, you can do a... Uh, yeah, you can see it all. Okay, good. You can continue to scroll down, and you'll, you'll see the rest. There it is. Yeah, so it, it, it's all visible. Just, just scroll down, and you should be able to see them all. Right. Uh, could you, Jack Teller here, could you uh, briefly explain again what the number means? Does the number one mean one person called it an ontology? No, the numbers are on a scale of one to five. One meaning rarely called an ontology. Is that right, Peter? Or never called an ontology. Right, never called an ontology. And five is always called an ontology. Within that person's uh, Within domain. that person's community. Community. Yeah, it's strictly within. I, all of these are within a context of a community. Thank you. And all of them are arranged on the wiki by community so that you can see which community this refers to. In this session, we're going to have two um, speakers that talk about a particular kind of ontology. Thomas Vanderwell about folksonomy and Pat about upper ontology. So there's, there's two exemplars we can just put on the table right away. And we don't need another, we only need one folksonomy and one upper ontology, okay? And then we can go get, uh, one, that's the kind of difference in space we want to fill in. So if you can volunteer some, you think they'd be really good discussion points. So what's, what would be a good folksonomy to use? Wikipedia. Wikipedia. Okay, so Wikipedia. Can we write these down? Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Can we? Not by the definition of folksonomy. No. Not by, no. By whose definition of folksonomy? Okay. Mine. Okay. I created the terms. I think, I think we don't have, let's not quibble about whether it is or isn't one of these. Uh, the important thing is just to produce a representative sample. Yeah, so I, I just look, Thomas just one He picked one, and I think okay. we have that. So we have the upper ontology? Okay, so, so of those kinds, I'll just put those down. What, Thomas, are you going to have, do you have a particular folksonomy that everyone can kind of get their head around? We can use? Probably use delicious. Delicious, delicious. okay. Yeah. Delicious. The way to spell delicious is start from the back. I C I. 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 I
Basic formal ontology, there, there it is. I'm surprised you don't have the foundation model of an anatomy in there. That's wasn't the edit, huh? It's a good one. Medical ontology. The foundation model. Plenty of medical ontologies in there. Uh, just nobody happened to mention that one. Right. I'm in there. <laughs> there are a couple of interesting ones. Uh, there's Nomad CT which is the largest control terminology slash uh, ontology uh, for clinical ontology with clinical aspects. That's interesting. MESH is also very well known. Coming, It's a control uh, vocabulary coming from the library science community applied to biomedicine. Uh, and ICD-9 or ICD, the International Classification mm -hmm. of Diseases, is also interesting because it's large enough 15,000 mm -hmm. uh, entities, and uh, speaking of governance, it's basically created, uh, maintained by the WHO. So, there, so any of this would uh, would work. How about how? Well, how about uh, how about mesh? Is that a good choice? Mesh is very well known. Mesh. So UMLS, UMLS is the Unified Medical Language it's System, and it's actually an integration of uh, 130 different terminologies, maybe not the first one to start with. Okay. I, I think it might be better with MESH. Uh, UMLS is, is a little more complicated. Okay, for our purposes, why not? No, actually, that's a um, that's a subject analysis. That's basically subject headings, which is more like a classification scheme than a controlled vocabulary. It's I a work with MeSH all the time at the World Bank. Subject headings. Yeah. That's very different than a a um, detailed granular controlled vocabulary. Right. What's a controlled vocabulary? Controlled vocabulary would be the ISO list of country codes, country names. Simple controlled vocabulary. No, ISO country actually, names. I was the one who suggested that it, number one, and that's why I was having a challenge with how we're presenting this. I suggested it is an ontology, but it is rarely called an ontology. That's an important distinction. It's rarely called an ontology, but it is an ontology. I'm still thinking, who cares whether it's an ontology or not? I mean, it's going to be something we're going to characterize, right? Right. So let's not, let's not quibble about that point. Let's just make choices here. Uh, ISO country names, I think, is a good exemplar. Let me just review. Remember, the evaluation criteria is... Is it going to help the rest? If we give this a list of examples and how they fit the dimensions, is it going to help people understand what this community does? Okay, so it does country codes. It could be a negative example of what we do. Okay. Do you have enough expertise? Do you know what uh, GO is 
gene ontology because it varies. You always says you Google search and then the, the, the thing that comes out on top is GO. Gene ontology. Right. Yeah. And what kind of, what's, how would you, what flavor of animal is that? So the gene, the gene ontology is another controlled vocabulary, what I would call a controlled vocabulary, for um, annotating genes and proteins. It has ESA and part of relations. Yeah, it, it also has it has a hierarchy, but shallow. Yeah, it has a hierarchy and it has three relations. Good enough for me. Okay, so that's that's one of those. Uh, maybe WordNet. WordNet. Everyone talks about WordNet. That's WordNet. It's come up already several times. Okay. What about boundary cases that people care about, or just when someone comes to you and goes? Both is friend of a friend. Friend of a friend. It's some ontology or that, that would help people on the web find out, I mean, uh, relate to other people. Yeah, it's like a representation of contact information. Yeah. Like data model. Data model. There are comments and descriptions of all of these on the wiki, by the way. As well as reference, as yeah, well as we links. Have like six more inches left. Okay. <laughs> Dublin Core. Dublin Core. Dublin Core. Okay, Dublin Core. Okay. Yeah, Sumo is an up. We have an upper ontology, right? Well, when we do, when, you know, whoever drafts whatever foobar, we'll just say, you know, DFO, SUMO, Environmental Data Coding Specification, EDCS. Okay. It's uh, something akin to a control vocabulary, something akin to a thesaurus. It shows some relationships between the different term terms. Coding, oh, specification. S, yeah. So actually, I was going to hope that some, one of these would be, there's a kind of ontology that describes database, that the data in a database, or a set of databases. And I'm not giving it a name, you know, but that not, I don't mean the, literally the schema, but I mean people have models of the data that they use to reason about. Is this one of those? It, it is, it is a, a data model, but it shows um, some conceptual meaning. It, it gives definitions and uh, some thesaurus definitions are there, or relationships. Are there any examples of geographic type data models anyone can suggest? Or geographic ontologies? Geospatial ML. Oh, I was just going to suggest if you couldn't come up with one for that, then you could use the, um, say, Essentially, an ebook XML schema. An electronic book XML schema. If you're trying to represent content models and content objects. Okay, actually, this is my opportunity to 
to ask this question. Brewster Kaler runs the Open Library Project. He put all, a card catalog of all the world books on the, on the web. I told him to do the humanities web thing with the ontology right? That's fine. There was one. Uh, is there one from Bibliographic Data that is a good one, or is there a preferred one? Dublin Core. Are you talking? Of, are you talking about metadata, or are you talking about the content architecture? Because they're two different things. Essentially, a page per book, all the metadata you can eat. No, that wouldn't be Dublin Core then. Dublin Core. No. No, but but Dublin Core is representative of a metadata scheme that could be extended in any other way. But so. You'd need. I mean, in the European Commission, they have what's called MOREC, which is the model requirements for bibliographic records, which would probably be close to that, but I must plead ignorance to the details. Okay. Well, since we don't, none of us know the data, we'll just delete it off the list. No, Dublin Core's already there. We can use it in that yeah. fashion. Um, I get it. I mean, that's used for a lot of stuff. This is used in, like, you know, Google Bits, believe it or not. I mean, Adam uses Dublin Core, which, you know, this stuff is all over the place. Okay, that's that's all the space we have. Now, your examples there. Anything else you can bubble up from that? We got them all. We got them all. Uh, much easier to read. Them. We have ten of them. Okay, great. Yeah. So now, why don't we can we conclude your remarks or are you good? That's now the the point is to start populating this. But I have two speakers. Okay. Well, one so thing. Um, I think you need more examples because there are a larger diversity of things that are knowledge classifications. One example, for example, is a national information exchange model. It's getting a lot of use lately. Uh, the name, um, it's not exactly an ontology, but it's, a, it's more like a schema. And yet it's something you might want to classify. There's, this, there's a whole library of OASIS models. I don't, I'm not familiar with them. But oh, let's they're, the ones we're familiar with. Well, okay. They represent a class of XML uh, models that, are, that act like ontologies. That, that's uh -huh. the only thing I've Yeah, if, you, if we understand what they are, we can Okay, Uni universal business language. Yeah. Yeah, actually, it seems like a lot of the examples that are put up right now are very sort of, a majority of them are web annotation oriented kind of, and there's also not a good spread across the boundaries of informal, informal. So I think that's maybe there are a few more examples are called for. So, for example, maybe uh, FIPA's agent communication language, which has a very different kind of purpose, very different uh, level of formality to it than most of the examples up there. Uh, what's FIPA stand for? Someone must know the. Yeah, no. Federation for uh, Federation for uh, Intelligent Physical Agents. Yeah, so I would argue that their agent communication 
language has, is a very interesting ontology, actually, and one that's been around for a long time, so it's worth considering. What about the um, uh, engineering math uh, KIF ontology, right? Yeah, engineering math is an interesting one that way, too. It's actually a real strong theory that's written in an ontology. It says something about how units and measures and quantities and international standards all that work together. So you can put it on a list at the bottom. What was it? What was it? Engineering math is called engineering math. Ontology. Engineering math? Yeah. Okay. Uh, but the, the, not all of these are. Web oriented, but uh, well, why don't we, okay, I think I think we do cover web and non-web. When we get in there, someone goes, "Wait a minute, we forgot." You know, when we're on some dimension, we'll, yeah. we'll come to us. We're but um, what happened here is there. So then, let's just go through, take this, and move to the next two speakers. I think I think we have enough now. So next uh, is Pat. Do you want to come up and give you talk about your upper ontology? Well, I can talk from here. Okay. okay. Uh, first slide. <laughs> uh, I'm going to describe it as some work. It's uh, in progress. It's just really starting, um, based on a lot of other work that's never got finished. Um, what I want to describe is, is a project in which I'm going to, I'm in the process of building a, an ontology. I call it a foundation ontology. These things have been called upper ontologies. I don't like that particular metaphor. Uh, called the Cosmo. Uh, this was started as, as a project within the, um, the Cosmo, which is a common semantic model working group of the ontology taxonomy coordinating working group. Um, but we're repurposing the Cosmo to serve as what I call conceptual defining vocabulary. And the notion is this, that if you have a base ontology which has all the fundamental representations of all the fundamental concepts that are necessary and sufficient to define any specialized concept, and any two projects or multiple projects that use this as the core set of concepts with which they define their specialized concepts, at any time these two projects want to share information, they merely have to share their definitions. And because they're based on the same fundamental ontology, necessarily uh, those two uh, projects will then be able to arrive at the same logical conclusions from the same data. And I think this is the, the highest level of interoperability one can aim for. Uh, the notion of a conceptual defining vocabulary is based on proven technology and language. There are dictionaries. So you can go to the next uh, slide. Um, dictionaries which actually use control defining vocabulary for their definitions. The first, I think, was a Longman's Dictionary. They use 2,000 base words. With those 2,000 words, they can define 100,000 words in their dictionary. Uh, I attempted to check to see if this worked reasonably well. I did some experiments myself. I took 500 words that were not in the base defining vocabulary, and I tried to define them with words from the base defining vocabulary, and without, without fudging, without trying to strain, uh, strain meanings of words. And I concluded that you could, do, you could do it. I only had to add, actually, two new words to the base vocabulary. Those were specifically the words dimension and the word participant. Uh, for some reason, they weren't in the base-defining vocabulary, and these are really fundamental concepts that, that you needed to express certain things, participant in, a, in an event or an action. 
Because words are labels for concepts, my hypothesis is that the fact that you can take these words and with them a limited number of words define all the terms in the dictionary you want to define, that analogously one should be able to define uh, any concept you want to define using base uh, concepts in a ontology that is intended and designed to serve as a conceptual defining vocabulary. Next slide. Uh, just to elaborate on what, um, one, what I mean by defining with respect to a base ontology, if I wanted to define uh, with the, this is a linguistic defining vocabulary, I want to define the concept of an atomic nucleus. The definition says it's the central part of an atom containing all the atoms, all the atoms mass and its protons and neutrons. Well, protons and neutrons are marked as not being in the base defining vocabulary. But it turns out that I could define proton with respect to the base defining vocabulary, and I could define neutron with respect to the base defining vocabulary. So that ultimately, I can define atomic nucleus transitively or recursively, if you wish, with respect to the base defining vocabulary. Let's say uh, any given word you want to put in, you may find that there are certain words missing from the base defining vocabulary, and you have to define those. But ultimately, going down without overlap, uh, it does prove possible to ultimately define any word you want with respect to the base defining vocabulary. Next slide. Uh, so what will this conceptual defining vocabulary, not the linguistic, but the conceptual defining be? How big will it be? Well, the Longman's 2,000 words actually represent more than 2,000 concepts. Some of the words are used in more than one sense, so you're guessing. My guess right now is going to be in the order of 4,000, 6,000, and uh, my intention is to do the experiments to try to determine just how big a um, foundation ontology you really need to serve as the, um, the conceptual defining vocabulary. So this, this is really an experiment. I'm very experimentally inclined. I like to answer questions by doing experiments. And uh, people have said, well, is, is there such a thing as a fundamental defining vocabulary? I intend to find out. Okay, next slide. Uh, how Now this gets to the question of methodology. Uh, basically the methodology was ad hoc. This is something which is, uh, there was not any previously existing methodologies for doing this sort of thing that I was aware of. And so uh, what I uh, took was a um, methodology of, of merging existing ontologies and uh, supplementing them where needed. And, of course, the first question that comes up is, well, uh, why, why don't you just use the existing ontologies per se? Why uh, build yet another upper ontology? And the answer is, well, I am using the existing ontologies. It's just that they don't, all, they don't all have everything I want in it, and so I'm picking and choosing those things I think are needed from all the upper ontologies I can get my hands on and adding to it those things that aren't in there. Uh, the other uh, principle uh, is that this is uh, basically promiscuous. Um, I'll put in anything that looks like it could be useful. And anybody else is welcome to put in anything they think is useful, too. Suggest the things in the course of this. This will be public. It will be on the web shortly. Uh, and uh, the notion is that uh, the, the base ontology should be able to accommodate anything anybody wants in it that they feel is necessary for creating their definitions. And we'll find place for it. Um, to, to find the proper relationships of any new terms that are required in the base ontology with respect to those that are already in there. 
And if it turns out that somebody wants to put in something that's logically inconsistent with the base ontology, this could present a problem. We'll find some way around it, but I think it's not going to happen, really. I, I haven't seen any necessary examples. There are different ways of doing things, but they're translatable into each other, not really logically inconsistent. It's just that there's a preferred way and there's another preferred way. If people insist, you can have two ways in there and just have translations between them. Uh, we will see as time goes by whether there are actually any logical incompatibility arises. Next slide. And just to give an example of how this is going, um, after I hit 2,500 uh, this classes, I'm just doing a taxonomy at this point, and it's an owl. We start off with around 2,500 classes, and now I'm, I'm taking uh, in the, uh, the sumo and the open psych, there were about uh, somewhat over 500 terms that were identical in two. And I'm, I'm checking these to see are they actually identical concepts. In most cases, they are. Sometimes they're not. And as I'm adding those in, on the bottom, I'm adding classes in. And on the left-hand side, what, I, what I'm showing you is the number of total classes I had to add. In order to put one class into uh, the ontology, uh, I had to add maybe two or three. And you'll notice from the slope of the slide that it only moderates a little bit. In the first half, it's 295. The second half, is 224. There is no asymptote evident at this point. And perhaps there shouldn't be because we're working with base ontologies. But the idea is that at some point, as we add more and more terms to your ontology, we should asymptote. You shouldn't need, you shouldn't need to add any additional terms other than the term you're adding. That, that should asymptote out to a level zero. Okay, next slide. Uh, where are we now? Uh, we're around 3,000 classes, 300 relations. We're going to keep going until we get all uh, of the Longman's linguistic defining vocabulary in there. Next slide. Okay, here we get to the issues that we're concerned about here. What are the design considerations? Well, as I say, it, it has to include anything anybody wants in it. Uh, otherwise, it won't serve. So it has, it has two design purposes. One is uh, as a... Um, defining vocabulary, it serves as an integration ontology. In fact, that's what Sumo was intended to serve as. That's what Psych was intended to serve as. As I say, this is yet another upper ontology with a somewhat different methodology and a different purpose and a very firm commitment to uh, sticking close to linguistic usage so that we can have good translations, good linguistic uh, interfaces to the ontology. And uh, creating a natural language interface is going to be difficult. I estimate a minimum 20-person years. So this is, this is for the future. I have to first create the base ontology to demonstrate that it's worth trying. Next slide. Uh, so with these base uh, design considerations in mind, then therefore how do I differ from Psych? Well, several, several examples. In Psych, okay, sorry. Well, I'm doing that now. These are the differences. Okay. Uh, what, what, how do the design considerations create, create uh, the, the, uh, the intention to create something different? Well, because in psych, uh, when, when they, they don't say there's a color red, what they say is that there are red things. And want to be sure that in the ontology there's actually an attribute called the color red. So you have to uh, structure it somewhat different. Uh, next slide. And this is how it looks in psych. There's a difference. Whereas in, at the bottom in, uh, in Cosmo, when you want to say um, red, red things, a red substance is, is red, you put it in one line. Every red substance has color red. Okay, next slide. Uh, psych also has differences in the way they represent uh, substances. Won't go into that. Next slide. Sumo has differences in the way they represent uh, 
uh, role-based relations. They have differences in the way they represent uh, texts. Uh, so there are differences which, which make it, uh, I think, in order to stick close to the linguistic alignment, which is one of the base purposes of designing this particular ontology, you do want some things that are different from the other upper ontologies. Okay, next slide. And in general, we want to create an ontology to make it easier to uh, represent things in ontology, to make it easier to query the ontology, to make it easier to use. We want to keep it as close as possible to English, to English, create a good English language interface. Sorry, Europeans, for other languages, they only know English. Uh, and um, I'm doing some experiments to try to demonstrate this is actually a feasible te uh, technique. Is there anything else in here, Peter? Is there another slide? Is that it? Okay, now, uh, on the categories that, uh, do you have any time left, Tom? Okay, uh, I, with respect to the categories, uh, with respect to this. Um, well, uh, do you want me to go with the seven, the seven dimensions? With with respect to structure, uh, the, OWL, the, the ontology is going to be an OWL and FOL. Uh, OpenPsych and Sumo both have OWL and, F and first order logic FOL versions. And we do need, in order to, to be expressive enough, you do need the axioms. So you do need ultimately rules of some form, first order logic. So it's, it's in the same category as um, Sumo and OpenPsych in that respect. Uh, expressivity similar, uh, same expressivity as those two. Uh, granularity, I don't understand. I'm not sure what that means. So I, I, Could you talk over? Start from column B. What do you want me to do? Is it called an ontology? I think so. Five. Well, I'd say so. I'd say five. I don't know what else you'd call it. <laughs> I'm calling it an ontology. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. okay. Structure. Um, what are the, what are the dimensions of structure? It's uh, it's uh, logic based, I guess. Uh, I'm not sure how. Structure would be, can you help me out with this, you guys? Um, it, it would be the, it, turn that off for a second, please. There we go. There we go. Forgot. Is the structure of it, um, is most of the definitions, or a lot of them, formal, and do they have formal semantics, or is it mostly open texture predicates? And just like, like long, like, see, Longman has that primitive bit, where they're all open, they're just primitives, they're atoms, and then the rest of it is formal, because it's composed of the primitive vocabulary. Okay. The, the ontology has, of course, it has the the, um, uh, the descriptions, the English language descriptions, and I try to be reasonably formal in the descriptions. But the, the essence of the ontology, what the computer will reason with, is formal in the same sense. It's it's definitely formal in the same sense that OWL is formal, and it's formal in the same sense that KIF language is formal. That it has the capability for first order uh, logic. That's the intended the, the intended expressivity. So it's formal. Formal rules-based. I would emphasize rules-based because that's uh, you can have you can be formal without having without having axioms. And I think that the expressivity is pretty much the same thing. Uh, well, I, I would actually put axioms rather than rules then. I, I, I use rules when I'm talking to people who don't know what axioms are. But I, I mean the same thing by them, basically. Well, for, yeah, let's get, let's get, we know what we mean. Let's get that clear. We can dumb it 
Well, here, here's the thing. Um, the OWL version will have a squirrel-like rules um, associated with them. Uh, there may or may not be a need for an FOL version that uses something beyond squirrel-like rules, and, and, and those you'd probably call axioms. But I'm thinking in terms of squirrel-like they call them rules uh, as being axioms in the ontology. What's what's your pleasure as for the terminology? Of expressive power. Thank you. I mean, that's, who can? Who's the formal? Well, in either case, step well. I'm a formal logician. Good. Any broken logics? The confusion I have is the use of those terms. In mathematical logic, you have nice formulas. You have your your variables and your your logical constructs, right. and go to town. Right. What you usually call an axiom is just a closed formula. Yes. Have a nice day. That's it. You don't necessarily have to add additional predicates or other relations or other uh, logical constructors, if you like, into the formal language to develop new axioms. So when I yes. spoke with this about certain people, uh, well, never mind, I'm going to that. Uh, but that's a very large confusion that realms or is out there, especially people in the semantic web, you know, rules, schmules. They are formal statements that you want to talk about, usually. In yeah. case, well, no, those are. It's, I think this is where you get into questions of uh, expressiveness. So the intent is that with rules languages, they're uh, a restricted syntax, and so it's not a general form of a, of a full first-order logic formula. And then you get OWL, which has less expressiveness than, say, a rules language. Um, so you know, I think the, this particular discussion is more along the lines of the expressiveness as opposed to the structure. Right, and the intention is, although I, at present I only have an OWL version, the intention is that there will be a, a version with the full expressiveness of first-order logic and axioms which have uh, you know, variables in them, and, and everything you can put into an axiom will be in there. No, but that's just this, this distinction between expressiveness. Um, so if you want to make this distinction with rules and axioms, you should be putting it talking about expressiveness right. Right. as opposed to structure. Right. Yeah, and if I can just interpose, I think the, the notion of rules, like a swirl, for example, th those are really more like, um, uh, you know, they come from horn, like horn rules from, horn, from logic programming, which is really more like a, a generalized modus ponens uh, that, that's uh, just an instantiated uh, modus ponens. Right. Are we going to take each one of these categories and do it kind of on the fly, or are we going to sort of try to get the the the, uh, the one through fives, although maybe not each one, um, figured out beforehand? Because we just went round and round on this one block, yeah. and I'm sort of wondering. As we come to each one, do we come up with some kind of an idea beforehand about what we mean from expressivity from one to five or something else like that? Excuse me. I was hoping we could uh, – we went down depth first on this one for a second. This is a good example of something the community might be able to do. Is a, may want to do it exhaustively today, but in terms of saying, look, there are important thresholds in expressivity, here, and here are three or four of them. And they, and they relate to functionality in the following way. And the examples can show us that. So we can, we can close the conversation for this particular ontology because you don't seem to care and you don't even know yet whether the content requires it. But some other ones do care and do, like, for instance, some of them are essentially only subsumption or something like that. And in those cases, that's a clear uh, example. Well, there is, there is one category of intended use, and there's two intended uses. It's um, uh, ontology integration and natural language understanding. So uh, that's one category. Uh, intended use. Uh, ontology integration, uh, natural language, or database integration also work for that, and natural language understanding. And for um, strictness, it's not strict at all. Anything goes.
I'm sorry, but I just I I don't understand where we're making these judgment calls. Where's the definition of expressivity and structure? Because for me, they are entirely circular and they are totally confounded. So I I sympathize with Pat trying to decide whether something fits here or here and how to characterize it because I don't think they're cleanly defined. Well, actually, the word expressiveness has some very technical definitions within mathematical logic. So it's really applying some of those. The, the, the question, though, of what is structure, I think you know, that's a valid point. Is to, we really do need to articulate what do we mean by structure and where are the different possible uh, values, if you will, uh, along that structure dimension. I agree. But, I mean, that's the point of this session is to just provide these kinds of phenomenological descriptions which we can then try to say, well, if, if people believe that structure is a dimension uh, and then, you know, they're describing their ontology, we will be able to uh, extract from Please that. read the paragraph, okay, those two paragraphs, because they mm -hmm. do re try real hard to clear. There's one giant objective difference between them, and that is that expressivity, expressivity is purely a function of the encoding language, and level of structure or formality is a property of the content the substance of it. Now, you can say they're highly correlated. That doesn't mean they're the same factor. Okay? They're correlated. And so one is a necessary condition for the other in certain cases. So okay? they're not orthogonal. They, they, are, no, they are orthogonal. The point no. is they can be – orthogonal doesn't mean not correlated. So actually, it means they, that, that, they, that they do not overlap very, very simply. Uh, I'm sorry, that's not true. That's, I mean, you're going to pull that out. That's true. So orthogonal means mathematically they're just axes. But we but don't have. It's intrinsic. But we, but we do not it's, have. It's in, if it's the property of the data. But we do not have. It's not, we do not have if, distinct axes. If here. that's the question, if, if that if that is the case, that there are two definitions of what we mean by orthogonal. I think we've got to go Fair back enough. a step <laughs> a little bit when yeah. we're talking about trying to identify Tom? orthogonal yeah. dimensions. Hold the time. If, if those two structure and expressiveness are highly correlated. In, regardless of whether they're orthogonal, not orthogonal, or what. But if they're highly correlated, effectively, do we need to distinguish them? That, well, well, no. So, for example, you take uh, a particular, let's say, the subsumption relation, okay, or if I can abuse and people attack me, say, you know, taxonomies are representing some kind of is a relation. Now, that is a property of that particular ontology. Now, that can be expressed in many different languages, and there may be a minimal expressiveness in a language that's required to even capture that is a relation. That's the nature of, a of the correlation, and that's the only nature of the correlation. Certain kinds of structure will have a minimal expressiveness requirement on the language. That does, the, that does not tell you that you must be using that language, and it doesn't say if you're using that language, you must necessarily use that structure, right? It just there's this minimal threshold. That's the degree of correlation. That's all there is. Yeah, why, why don't we set up, I mean, what we want in expressivity, uh, expressiveness, I mean, one through five, or? Oh. Could, could we go back? We didn't even do D and E. Uh, yes, yes. Automated reasoning is, is absolutely required for both applications. Can we go back to D? Well, it's the same. It does. It does support automated reasoning, right? Expressiveness. What are you going to say? Well, uh, maximum FOL, but there will be a version in in, um, in OWL. Maybe this is an ambiguity we can clear up. Let us let us say that if you have several versions, the um, expressiveness should be the expressiveness of the most expressive version. I would think. 
I think yeah, it should probably be maybe minimal expressivity. Yeah. But you were you were saying uh, owl plus swirl though, right? Yeah. So owl owl and swirl. Yeah. Yeah. So that's good because it, it's a defining characteristic of topologies, and we can talk about it. Well, that's good. That's good to them in case like taxonomies and whatnot, right? Well, I said it's not strict. I don't know what you're what the, what the terms you're using there. I, I call I call it I call it promiscuous. So whatever. Well, prescriptive and de uh, descriptive, I think. So I think you mean descriptive, right? Which is kind of promiscuous. Yeah, I think that's the formal term. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, no, not based on any previously existing methodology. I'm really glad that Thomas Vanderwall could come. Thomas actually does get the right to say what folksonomy means because he did make up the word and everyone gives him credit on the web for it. So he's got both Google Mojo and Academic Mojo on the same term. So let's welcome Thomas. He's going to tell us about folksonomies and we can use that as an example of whatever these things are. Thanks. It's going to be a PDF. Great. All right. All right, go to the next line. All right, beginning the discussion on folksonomy with what is tagging, uh, since that's the basis for folksonomy. Uh, next slide. The definition of tagging, essentially pulling this from uh, anthropology and the people who are tying manila tags with wires to objects. Uh, it's a simple metadata and data externally applied to an object. It's used for sorting. Uh, for dates, geographical, a hook for aggregating uh, by type of object and so forth, provides an identifier and or description. And lastly, it uh, provides a personal marker. Who uh, is the person who added this information? Uh, you can then back into uh, deriving what school of thought they came from, what understanding they come from. Next slide is the F word. Next slide, folksonomy. Definition of folksonomy is the result of personal free tagging of uh, pages and objects for one's own retrieval. This is all within digital space. The tagging is usually done in a social environment shared and open to others. Uh, there are cases with most of the tools that are out uh, that allow you privacy for things that you are tagging, uh, being able to point to an object and not share that. Uh, and there are uh, tools such as Gmail, which allow you uh, labeling and tagging uh, in a non-shared environment. Um, and the namespace that an individual applies to it uh, roughly can apply across the different uh, tools, although I'll get to that in a, a moment. And lastly, it is the, the act of tagging is done by the person consuming the information. Uh, tagging that had come before Delicious, and Delicious was sort of the a uh, tool that started uh, breaking tagging that really didn't work into tagging that actually uh, did have functionality. And to have richness and you're able to use it, what differentiated Delicious from tools that came before it was adding identity um, and being able to pivot on identity and understand who was making the statement as to what tag or set of tags uh, were describing an object. And jump to the next slide. So the value of a folksonomy, it's external tagging is derived from people using their own vocabulary and adding explicit meaning, which may come from inferred understanding 
of the information or object. Um, people may be looking at uh, things that are going on in the Middle East and have vastly different understanding of what it what it is based on their perspective, based on uh, context and other things, and they're making an explicit statement by placing a tag there as to what they are thinking about it, um, what their understanding may be, and it may be something beyond their own understanding uh, because they may have discussions with different people and they may want to recall this information uh, based on who they're, they're talking with, but it's for their own basic retrieval of information that they're applying the tags. And people are not so much categorizing as providing a means to connect items or placing hooks on them to provide their meaning in their own understanding. Next slide. So what we get down to is every person is an expert in their own vocabulary or tags. Uh, when you talk to people who are working in the taxonomy realm, they want to start throwing out uh, tags that don't seem to apply because they're, uh, they're not an expert term. Uh, but when people are placing tags onto things, and Rashmi Singha, who's a uh, researcher and has a PhD from Cal, and she was trying to understand her own tagging. And one of the things that she was finding was the less cognitive uh, strain she put on when she was applying tags, the better the recall of those objects were in the future. Uh, so the least amount of thought, and she looks at an, an object, she looks at a web page and says, oh, here's what I think this is. The better, the least thought that she puts into it, the better the recall is at future times because that's her real own vocabulary. That's her own thought process that's being expressed. Uh, paraphrasing Monty Python, essentially with every person being an expert in their own tag, every tag is sacred. So if you start removing tags um, from people's own collections, you start breaking their ability to refine information. And the refinability of information is one technology pain um, that is rarely addressed or it's not addressed um, as much as it actually should be. And folksonomy tools and tagging and social bookmarking tools are one of the things that start addressing this technology pain and start breaking down the wall of, you know, I have 30 minutes to find this, this document for my white paper or for my email. I can't find it. I need to link to it. and It's important to what I'm saying. And you can ask people questions along these lines, and you watch the stress level go up as if they were reliving that moment. It might be a week later. It might be five or six years later. But that pain is still with them every single day. Moving to the next slide and start breaking down folksonomy as a triad. Uh, next slide. We have three important elements. One is the object that's being tagged, uh, the metadata that's being applied, and next is identity. And the identity is what separated uh, folksonomy tagging from tagging that came prior. So if we go to the next slide, what's expressed between identity and the object is interest in the object. What's expressed between identity and the metadata is that person's vocabulary. And what's expressed between the object and the metadata is the definition. If we move to the next slide, uh, we start looking for others and we move the definition out of that, uh, that person's own uh, vocabulary and that person's own construct. Move to the next slide. And we start finding a mirror of the identity using that definition on the object uh, as the, the connection piece. And move to the next slide. Where we have vocabulary between identity and the metadata, we have terminology between the community or the group and the metadata. It's a little bit more formalized. If you're trying to express interest or to state something, uh, it's going to be a little bit more structured. There is a more or less right way of using the term. Um, and it becomes part of enculturation on understanding how that term is used in a broader context. And then next line. Uh, 
We have where we have interest expressed between the object and identity. We have culture that's being expressed. So you may have an interest in Coca-Cola and uh, you're expressing an interest in saying this is uh, Coca-Cola. But if you're in a culture, you're getting things, uh, other paraphernalia and other things that are being sold around Coca-Cola. You're understanding that it's uh, pop, maybe soda, other things that are a little bit broader with the definition. And using another pivot, you're able to see other metadata that other people are applying to the same object. Um, but you're also getting it with just Coca-Cola as the tag pointing to an object. Um, that same definition can be used for many different things. Moving to the next slide. If we want to find more objects, we use the identity and the metadata as the pivot point and using that as the core base. Uh, to the next slide to find other objects. So we're using uh, what is there, which is the vocabulary, and doing the pivot on the vocabulary uh, to find other objects. So we can find other things that this person has used. But if we start switching identity with community and we're looking for other things that people have in common, um, we can start doing uh, a simple script and running across uh, something like delicious and saying, give me 10 other people or 30 other people that have used uh, the same tag on the same object. And if you start running across and you have 10 things in common where they've used that term, you can pretty much um, start using that as a predictor of using the same vocabulary and the same terminology. So then you can start taking things that you have found in bookmarked, running it across uh, those six other people, and start saying, oh, here are things that I haven't seen yet, um, and subtract what you've seen uh, from what they have seen, and you're left with you know, a handful of items. Um, but you're using the same core terms. And so you start being able to understand uh, language and terminology as a, a means to filter through a flood of information to get things that you haven't seen, as well as also being able to use that as a uh, refindability tool. Moving on to the next slide. Reasons why people are tagging is providing uh, their own use uh, and value first. Uh, what Joshua Porter of UIE uh, calls the delicious lesson. There's something in delicious that people are solving their own problem. It's not because it's social, but it's a tool that allows them to manage their own uh, social bookmarks, uh, being able to refine things most easily. Uh, the next reason is that they're adding perspective or context, either uh, through missing metadata, uh, it's emergent vocabulary that they're using, uh, or it's a personal descriptor that they have. Uh, but it also can be things that are also in in that information where we start getting into refindability and the aggregation of information. It may be an article on uh, Coca-Cola, and we're going to label it Coca-Cola. Uh, that information is in there, but we're using it to aggregate Coca-Cola information. It uh, can also be for task-based aggregation, where we can say uh, this is for a white paper, this is to, uh, to read, this is, um, you know, these are the directions for getting to, to NIST. Um, and the next is to be able to state interest. Um, by placing a tag on something, you are stating, I do have an interest in this information. Things that you don't have any interest in, you're probably not going to be tagging. You're not going to be making that explicit statement. And lastly, it's also a, uh, a method of sociality. Uh, you'll find where people are putting tags on things where it's not their own vocabulary. It's not necessarily their own interest, <coughs> but they're making a social statement um, to be cool or to be part of that group. 
uh, to have that information included in with um, in a context. Uh, and next slide will point out the two most valuable, and it's refindability and for their own use first. That's why we need to build tools. <coughs> uh, go back a slide. Uh, the one one two two. Essentially, this is something that I had stumbled on, where we have one person and one tag, and they're tagging different objects. When they go to delicious and they're tagging objects and they use the term design, it may mean visual design. When they use the term design and they're tagging objects and they go to Magnolia, another social bookmarking tool, they may mean software design. So if we jump to the next slide, where we had the three dimensions for the folksonomy triad, the object, the metadata, and identity, there's a fourth one that we need to be capturing as well, which is the service, the device, which starts allowing us provenance and also gives us an understanding of context. Uh, somebody may be using Delicious at home. They may be using Magnolia at work, and so their context for, for tagging things is going to be slightly different, or they have a different group of uh, people that they interact with on each service, or it may be visual cues. There's many things that may be in, uh, tied into that um, that are going to start reflecting tagging and tag use. Um, we can also start looking at people who are taking photographs, tagging on their mobile device directly, pushing that to a laptop or a desktop, and then pushing that up to a tool uh, like Flickr, where the initial tagging was not uh, done directly in Flickr, but it may be a short term, a four-letter term that uh, somebody is using in place of a 14-letter um, you know, term. And so the understanding of uh, the device, the limitations, uh, social con constructs, uh, and somebody's own understanding, um, we need to be capturing at least where that came from so we can disambiguate down the road when we're trying to understand uh, the, the meaning of a single tag um, and the, the information that's around it. And lastly, I believe, is the next slide, leveraging folksonomy. Um, essentially, your ability to look across disciplines or community for interoperability. We can look to see what marketing is calling an object because it can be object-based. We can and then turn around and say, you know, what's the scientific community calling this? What's the, you know, what is the vernacular for the scientific terms? Uh, we're able to surface small group ontologies. Uh, we can take a small community and uh, sort out that they're using a term differently or have their own uh, germain term that hasn't been included in the larger term, and they have a horrible time finding information. We're also able to identify terms that are synonymous as well as fungible. Uh, because we're using terms from different uh, axes, uh, we can say that this business term and marketing term is the, a fungible term for a scientific term. And it provides a mean to move, means to move from the formal to the vernacular, uh, as an example from scientific medicine to patient communication, where you start having uh, medical professionals that can move to the vernacular to communicate what a disease is, uh, treatment methods. The rates of malpractice suits are greatly decreased when you're able to communicate in somebody's own language and there's somebody's own understanding. So if you have a folksonomy and you're able to identify what uh, the patients or a certain subset of patients are calling uh, their problems or their methods of treatment and being able to take medical professionals and take their, their formal understanding and then bridging the two together uh, through folksonomy, you start getting some real power. Um, and that concludes the overview. Thank you. Uh -huh.
Now, what I love about this example is that if you think, it makes you squint a little bit, but if you line those dimensions up against it, you get some really interesting results. You know, starting with the hardest one, which is role of reasoning. Really interesting reasoning going on here, but it's just not, it's not unification over predicates. It's a different kind of reasoning. So, go ahead, Leo. Uh, just a question. Uh, can the user uh, get displayed uh, the actual uh, uh, bookmarks or terminology uh, and structure it in any way? Um, they can do whatever they wish. The delicious model uh, has the URL, uh, URL, URI, a title which can be derived from uh, the page itself or they can put their mm -hmm. own in. It has a, an open text field uh, which delicious limits I believe at 255 and then it's uh, an open tagging field. Uh, and the construct for delicious, which is uh, their delimiter are spaces, um, which has sort of problems outside of the early adopter group. Um, it can work well within uh, where you have a uh, two-term uh, two tag. Um, it begins to be difficult when you start mashing it up together. Uh, and so you start looking at comma delimited or quotation delimited, which then start having implications when you start moving internationally for languages that don't have commas and they don't have quotation marks. Uh, people that are building interfaces interaction design for um, you know, outside of the you know, Western European languages that don't have quotations and commas uh, will use combination uh, tag fields. So they'll have one field per uh, tag term. Uh, so you can have uh, Japanese characters, more than one, uh, and you're having spaces between them to, to separate. And so you can start getting delineation. And as you enter one tag term, it groups them and then moves them down. Uh, the common structure on Apple format is um, essentially a bubble cloud around each uh, uh, the tag combinations. Uh, so you can have something like Dairy Queen or San Francisco um, and keep that space within it. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, when you start getting out of out of the space of early adopters or um, you know, the 95% of the people who don't live their life on the web, um, <laughs> you start having to put in commas. You have to have uh, more human understandable uh, delimiters. Okay, but can you uh, can you conceive of building a taxonomy out of your terms? Um, essentially, the way that I frame it is that taxonomy and folksonomy need each other. Um, a folksonomy is emergent and can validate a taxonomy, identify gaps, and then provide the term to input into the taxonomy. Um, because taxonomies are horribly resource uh, hungry when you start building them, updating them. A folksonomy is uh, not resource intensive uh, if you're building it for somebody's own value, uh, but folksonomies don't have structure. Um, they're very fuzzy, they're very loose, um, so the two really need each other to work well. Uh, so it's a marriage of the two that um, essentially becomes a win-win situation. I was wondering if individuals can refresh their tags, say, as they become more sophisticated in an area, or maybe even time one, time two, that's a different context for them? Um, many of the, the more sophisticated tools have an ability to go back and re-tag things. Um, I find that a little bit problematic because um, you, what you essentially want to do is to augment the tags, not overwrite tags. Um, but being able to, um, for example, before summer of 2004, the term folksonomy didn't exist. 
um, and Delicious had been around and some other tools that had uh, similar properties to Delicious. Uh, so you could go back and put folksonomy in um, to make it a relative term to tagging or surface where you said tagging, and then go back and look at the things and say, oh, these are the, you know, of the 427, these are the 126 that I want to add folksonomy to. Um, there's some tools that start uh, looking at what other people have tagged the same objects and whether you have uh, strong uh, similarities with your vocabulary and somebody else's vocabulary and will offer up whether you want to add, let's say, a folksonomy next to tagging. Um, and uh, people have taken the uh, timeline tools and being able to run uh, timelines across a set of objects that you've tagged one thing and seeing what other terms you've used um, to start surfacing. Um, right now it's still, you know, things around folksonomy are still rather young, uh, and the tools are sort of catching up. Um, and so it's, there's a lot of, uh, an awful lot of room to improve them, uh, to start taking um, you know, solutions that humans have with language and so forth and being able to uh, go back and add structure and be able to augment as well. I would say the folksonomies do have structure, although it's not entirely explicit. Right. But it does have um, an implicit structure, which is, which is membership. All of, the all of the terms, all of the words that are used by one person to tag an object are members of the same cloud. They are members of the same set of concepts that are used to describe that object. They have an association regardless of whether or not we define it mathematically or logically as explicit. Right? Yeah. No, but, but I would also say, no, actually that's, um, they have, that's why I find these confusing because I would say that's actually relationship as opposed to structure. What they don't have is syntax, okay? Because as, as we were just hearing, they're simply bits of letters that are delimited by spaces or in some cases commas, which doesn't necessarily translate into syntax in the language. But I think, and, and we're using these exactly the way you're mentioning to feed um, our thesaurus. Mind if I take a this, this This is a really good case of two, two distinctions. One is the structure one. Now, in, I'm, we're actually building a, a formal ontology of tag data right now, and it's Enforcing us to be clear about it. it. It turns out that that we only need like you know one relation and a half a dozen other things, and that we're we're done. Okay, that that's treating folksonomy data as emergent as data as data points. As each tag by a person is a data point. So you think of it as a row in a table if you want to. And now there are also secondary relation uh, inferred relations, like what Denise was referring to. You can do computation and like for instance aggregation or, you know, counting, or doing this tide cloud thing, or something like that, where you're essentially inferring some other relation. And ontology can give that inference, the result of inference, a name, but not define the computation that leads to it formally. So someone could say, for instance, a square root is a thing that if you take the two things, they multiply together, blah, blah, blah. you don't have to have the algorithm for square root in the definition of square root. And, and that's, what, that's sort of what's interesting now is we can have that kind of a model where there's a lot of data out there. And Folksonomy is a great example of it where the, data, the ontology is it's just the core, what I guess what Pat would call the, the foundational ontology vocabulary 
is, is very, very primitive and small. But the amount of inferential power, if you do the right inferences on it, is, I mean, the amount of mojo in there is really high. Now, the second distinction was, is it, uh, it was the, um, the, the guy from, for the realists. What was his name? Sorry. Werner. Werner. Are you, are you on? Well, I think you're on, hopefully. Werner made this distinction between individuals and you know, universals and made that a sort of a nice discrete boundary, right? Well, here's a case where if you think of folksonomy, if you think about the ontology of folksonomy, then you can say there's this one relation called tagged, and then there's this thing, role in there called tagger, and there's a thing called object of tagging or whatever. You have these four or five positions in there. And that's the whole ontology, and because those are all universals in a way. But then you could say all the ground instances of that particular delicious community is, a, is an interesting source of data of the sort the natural language people are interested in. It's information data about people's use of language. So we can, so that, now that gives us a little a tool to say which perspective on this, what, what kind of ontology are we talking about here based on that formal distinction? Well, the, form, the, sorry, the formal distinction was, are you looking at the primitive vocabulary by which you would encode, which, by which we communicate the data? For instance, if I wanted to have an API on top of delicious, an API on top of, of this Magnolia thing, how could I have them interoperate in a semantically coherent way? Uh, the interesting inferences, so the structure says, the structure is, that, well, the, the definition of those terms, if they're, op- they're mostly open textured, they won't be just, un, you know, undefined, they're just in text, I mean, defined in text. Uh, but you could, you could define uh, an inferential one, like Denise was talking about, that's, that has some structure on it. You could say, well, this thing has to be the property such that there's always a, a tag cloud is a set of things such that there's at least one instance, blah, 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 right? Now, the, the, the other way you could look at it is you could say the resulting data from Delicious is a giant but very poorly structured ontology. Very poorly in the sense of weak. It doesn't have any much structure to it at all directly. It's just like a word net type thing. And then and from that point of view, it's, it's, a control, it's an uncontrolled vocabulary. I think actually it would be considered an extensible controlled vocabulary because you've identified or the community has identified terms and then it can grow. Yeah, there's uh, people start picking up terms that other people have used um, to essentially improve their own vocabulary. Um, But uh, the control vocabulary is essentially what is inside somebody's head. Um, So that's their control vocabulary that they're applying. Uh, And then there's some external uh, parameters, which is what's the community calling things. Um, And as Delicious was growing, there was changes in the interface as to uh, were you taking the corpus of everybody who had tagged that object? Um, and when they were doing that, people were selecting other people's terms, and people couldn't refine their information. Um, and, but they could refine it if they were using their own. So what uh, Joshua had turned around and done is he took your own corpus of all the tags that you had used um, and then paired it against the uh, the corpus of everybody who had tagged that object and only surfaced those items from uh, the total corpus that were appeared in your own in your own corpus. Um, so it was providing suggestions based on how you may think. Um, and depending on your uh, definition or your use usage of a term uh, around design or something, 
Um, so it was uh, that was a really intelligent way of um, using the collective or the the selective in the community um, to then provide your own personal perspective and um, sort of ease your way through through tagging. Uh, just an observation. I'm not sure really if this is uh, definitional or even helpful, but I think the um, strictness uh, feature of folksonomies uh, tags. There's nothing necessarily forcing a person to be descriptive or prescriptive. I can imagine easily a web page with a review of a music album and 100,000 people tag it as must buy. Half of them are thinking I must buy because it's very good. Half of them are thinking I must buy so I can check it out, you know, intentional or extensional. So. It's a really good example. So let's try to capture some of this. This is a really good example of an endpoint of that scale. Right? This is as least prescriptive as you can get. Right? Hi, my name is Sudarshan. Um, I work at NASD. I have a couple of questions, maybe observation. Um, we are talking about the dimensions, and there were some discussions about whether it's orthogonal, independent, correlated, and things like that. So I'm just wondering, even if we cannot agree on the terms of those uh, important in nature on which we are going to even build the framework, um, I'm, I'm asking, can we build an ontology to the dimensions itself? First of all, what, what is that dimension? Uh, have we exhausted all the things that we wanted to think of? Uh, that goes back to the question of structure. What is structure? Is it a mathematical object? If you take the progression of mathematics from sets to groups to rings to fields and things, there is, uh, 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 there is a rational behind the succession of uh, things that we make. Uh, we need uh, uh, one operation, then we need two operations, we need the closeness in operations and all the stuff. So if you take two ontologies, and then if I take uh, a, co a composition of these elements, does it belong to that or within that set? Is it a set or something else? Uh, so those kind of questions uh, I'm struggling to understand myself. Maybe there are better experts here than me. So I just want to ask the question, what is structure? Is it a mathematical object or much beyond that? And, and I have one more and then I'll stop. Uh, goes back to the expressiveness. Um, expressive in the natural language process of the human consumption where human can uh, understand the things. But if you talk about computer representation and expressiveness, are we talking about processable expressiveness? So we'll get into all these computability issues and scalability and all that. So are we even touching that, or is it beyond the scope of this? Yeah, let's take two. You guys. I'll make mine short. Uh, I, I think if we think of structure as formal or informal, maybe it's easier. Well, I was thinking that we could actually, I mean, you know, Part of the problem here is trying to come up with precise definitions in a big group of people who are often quite on the more informal side. So this is a little painful, but it's an open process. <laughs> um, but I think when it, maybe when it comes to the, when we're talking about structure, it, it seems like what we're getting at is the. So if we're if all of our ontologies are in some way specifying, you know, the meanings of terms, concepts, whatever we're you know, the, the vocabulary that's in the ontology. The vocabulary, can you at least be in vocabulary in the ontology? The meaning is the issue. That's, exactly, it's the meaning. Not all ontologies will have meaning. No, but they will, you will be designing the ontology with some intended meaning for those terms. That's intended. Exactly, intended meaning. Well, well, okay, intended meaning of the terms. 
Um, so if we're getting at what is the nature of that specification, right, then I think there are there is kind of like a, a certain continuum in terms of talking about are you looking at unstructured text in natural language? Are you looking at arbitrary sentences in a formal language? Or are you looking at special kinds of statements, restricted states, uh, kinds of statements like subsumption relations, uh, relationships among classes, associations among topics, right? There's that, and I think that seems to be the notion of structure that that is well, it was was implicit in this uh, the paragraph in the framework, and seems to be floating out here, right? It's it's not so much the structure or the structures in the in the ontology, but it's the the amount of of structure that's in that description, right? Again, unstructured text is just free form, natural language, providing lots of, of information about it. Uh, but even if you get topic maps, right, um, there is a certain amount of structure there. Uh, now, it's restricted kind of structure because, you know, you're only allowed to have these kind of binary associations between topics as opposed to, say, with things in Cosmo where you can have arbitrary axioms, sentences in that form of language. Now is that something Don't that confuse now we're still confused about the expressive thinking about, thinking about I, the I didn't no sorry okay yeah. did I use the word expressiveness did I use yeah. the word expressiveness yeah, yeah. well no I mean okay sorry no Add. expressiveness is fine but you were talking when you talk about whether it's first order logical whatever that's 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 the language property okay let me just, let me check, try this a second Let's, there's an example in the definition right here it try, tries to clarify this and by the way it it was called structure and formal formalism originally. Formalism is the most ambiguous, dangerous word in this space. You can, I mean, form, you know, it goes every which way from Sunday. No one knows what that means. Um, but, it, I, but I think that's what, the, in, in our vernacular, that's what we say. How much formality is it? Okay. A highly formal, like, for instance, if you look at the, if you think of it as definitions, not all ontologies are just sets of definitions and what have you, but, but each, each thing, for instance, every class definition, every relation definition will have some amount of constraint on the possible worlds that can satisfy it, possible models it can have, right, to get fancy about it. And so the more constraints it has, is the more formal. That's one way of thinking of it, formal. Another way of thinking of it is if you look at data in computer science, there's structured data and unstructured data. Relational databases with numbers are over here and blobs of text are over here, or even worse than text, blobs of pixels are over here. And between the two is semi-formal, semi-structured. Tom Malone at MIT came up with that name. He was talking about things like email, which has these fields which are computable, like address fields, and then it has these fields that are just bunches of text. So in our world, in ontology world, the semi-structured ontologies are those that the structure part can be computed over. And it might just be subsumption, or it might be whole kinds of axioms and stuff. That's the part that makes it formal. So the most formal, that engineering math ontology we talked about is extremely formal. Because basically it just takes what's built into KIF, which is set theory, and throws on and a couple other things and throws on top of it the mathematics necessary to do physical uh, maths for physics. Um, and, and that was a luxury, but we still we still ground it in eventually unstructured. There were, un, there were unstructured parts of that ontology as well because it had to ground itself in the world. So that's the model. So the folksonomy is interesting. We can actually be totally structured about uh, about some of these inferential relationships. Like we can say, like, you're, you take the triad he did, like a beautiful drawing, the triad, and then you say, generalize to community, there's some implied relations. Those implied relations can be defined formally. Um, and then you can compute them any way you want. Uh, but the definition is, now we all agree it's spelled this, you know, whatever. And that's the point. Right? Question from the phone. You want to take that? Yeah. Uh, 
person from 716 area code, please speak up. Uh, yeah, that's Werner here. Go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, okay, great. Uh, while you were giving the presentation about foxonomy, I was a little bit playing around with uh, delicious. And as you remember from my presentation this morning, my main concern is always when you uh, have an ontology, uh, what do the terms in an ontology refer to? Um, realism tries to give an answer to that. Now, I see that a similar problem is, is related to folksonomy. When I, for instance, enter the word football, then I get web pages which are about football, most of them. When I enter, then I do not get web pages which are about reviews, but then I get reviews. So is that it seems to me that persons who are using at least delicious and maybe uh, foxonomy tagging in general uh, don't bother about whether the tags they sign are about the things which are described in the web pages or are the web pages themselves. Do you consider that to be a problem or not? Professor Thomas, um, it depends on the tool. Delicious uh, doesn't necessarily pay attention. Up. Depends on how you search. If you search on tags within Delicious, you're only getting the tags. So if you're searching football, uh, it's only going to be football, um, and there's not a real strong way to disambiguate the term football, uh, whether you're meaning European football and something an American calls soccer, or, or the rest of the world calls uh, football and Americans call soccer. Um, but it's, there's other tools that do that really well. Raw sugar disambiguates terms really well uh, based on a, um, a cross, uh, a marrying of uh, taxonomy and uh, folksonomy, and you can start disambiguating terms really nicely within that tool. Um, it's uh, some uh, tagging services and social bookmarking services will pay attention to uh, what is in the text of the, the document that's being, or the object that's being pointed to, uh, the title that's there, and the tags. Uh, it all depends on the service uh, and what is being computated and searched upon. So remember, the, the semantics of folksonomy is people's personal retrieval, right? That's what it means. All it means is, I want to store it that way. That's all there is. Now you can, that's, that's actually plenty. Then there's a social process. Uh, like a, a good example from Wikipedia. So Terry Gross, this is a National Public Radio interviewer in the United States. You see, remember that example? And then she was interviewing the guy who started Wikipedia, Jimmy. Um, and she goes, hey, I got, a, you know, I got a good one for you. I looked up uh, our show, and on it it said Danny Brenner was executive producer. And I went to Danny Brenner's page, and it was this horrible mass murder, serial murder guy. And that's not the Danny Brenner we know because it was actually a fictional character. And because the, by default, they're snapping to string matching um, in the wiki model, and the same thing as tags. It's sort of that same problem. You, you do matching on strings. There's no semantics. You get it wrong a lot. On the other hand, the point of me bringing this up is that there's a, he, Jimmy goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, he's not saying, I'm sorry, that's an embarrassing thing, but, hey, there's a process for this. And the moment that happens and someone notices it, they go to the discussion page and go, let's disambiguate uh, Brenner, Danny Brenner, into two of them. And that's what's really interesting about how folks on is now. If you, as the tools mature, we'll see that, social disambiguation of terms. Yeah. Uh, can I... Can I conclude? Because that was not really the, uh, the issue of my, uh, my question. 
So, uh, of course, I, I tried other things such as Lion, and then I get different things such as uh, tickets for the Lion Kings or the animals or whatever. So, my, my question was not about the disambiguation of terms. It was really about what users are actually tagging. And there seems to be a confusion about tagging the web pages and tagging that what the web pages are about. So, mixing two different it's, levels. That's right. The it's um, the thing that it, it the folks on me gives you is you can dis, uh, you start disambiguating not the term but by the individual who's doing the tagging, um, and the social bookmarking tool doesn't care who anybody is, um, but they provide you the identity to do the pivot. Uh, someone who's tagging lion for Lion King, um, they may use that term uh, consistently. Um, whereas somebody who's interested in zoology may be using lion in a very different way. Um, and so that was one of the things that started taking some of the messiness out of tagging that came prior because there was no identity. There was no means to understand who was doing the tagging. Um, and it didn't give you that, uh, that point to pull out those you didn't agree with um, or opt in for those who you did agree with. I mean, I don't know how controversial, Peter Brown, this, I don't know how controversial this is in the, in the current context, but this idea that somehow people tag exclusively for their own use and for their own recall, I would just sort of put up a little uh, flag here. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, the extreme of that is the sort of social engineering, blog bombing type of approach where people are deliberately tagging in order to, to, to create a different, different effect. I mean, my question is, to what extent is that, Coming back to our sort of matrix of uh, evaluation of, of, of folksonomies, is that, is that a question where the, the question of the initial intention of intended use is now broadening to that, maybe in different directions, and makes it more difficult to, to really to, to pin down what a tag is going to be intended? The whole point is that the only one thing we know they're not doing it for is to get an ontology right. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing that very well. Uh, this is Ken. Um, uh, maybe I should be wearing my raincoat right now, but uh, how about if we stick to what's in the uh, in the framework and in the structure column, we use structured, semi-structured, and unstructured. Um, if, if we limit it... Yeah, if we do that, then I think maybe we could come to a little closer, a little closer to an agreement on some of these... Uh, some of these ontologies. And, and for expressiveness, uh, I believe we already have some, uh, some continuums, right? Yeah. Uh, or some, you know, with, with, with terms along the, uh, along the line. Uh, could we try to put those in to that column? So again, we, so we don't have just arbitrary terms appearing. Sorry, I, I sh as I say, I, I should have been wearing yeah. my raincoat. <laughs> yeah, I thought the tomato is very dangerously close here. Um, Semi-structured, I think it's, it's, it's a rat's nest. It's a, it's a rabbit hole, I mean, or whatever, you, or whatever term you want to use. Um, you can have an XML well-formed and valid document, and you can just have one pair of tags which says you can stick anything in there. That is still fully structured according to that definition. So something's either structured because you've defined some sort of frame for it, or it isn't. I mean, if you go down to the word or character level, you can say it's structured because it's all written in Unicode or ASCII, so. Operationally, you can think of it as what kind of computations does it afford? And, and there's no such, there's no like number. That's expressiveness then. No, no, no computations. 
So what kind of, like, if you have a relational database with numbers, you can do a lot of interesting computations on it. That's right. And if you express and it in ASCII, you can do a few more. And, and if you do it in Unicode, a lot more. So it's expressive. Well, okay. I might. Okay. Going back to Werner's example and trying to bridge between folksonomies and, uh, and ontologies. Um, so imagine a, an article, a medical article, medicine is all I know, I'm sorry, um, about randomized clinical trials uh, for uh, chronic heart failure, for example. Uh, typically with mesh headings, you will, uh, you will assign two things. You will assign um, chronic heart failure uh, that's what the thing is about. And you will assign a randomized clinical trial. But through the mesh hierarchy, you will find uh, randomized clinical trials under publication types. And so you will know that uh, the, the article itself has publication type randomized clinical trials. So uh, I think the reviews kind of thing could, be, uh, could become the same thing. Uh, through, so first of all, it's going to be just reviews, and once the folksonomy gets a little bit organized or gets merged with uh, some ontology, uh, it will be possible to understand that the uh, web page is actually a kind of review about football or something like this. So, that, so we, this is some candidates to extend the dimensionality. I'm sorry, because there was this notion of provenance we talked about before, which got which got a lot of legs to it. And the other bit was, what was Denise had this notion of context, which is a big which is a big thing. It could be a lot of things, right? Now, in the case here, you've got a good example of that. So, of an ontology that is fairly context-free, like one that's just in KIF, um, is is pretty context-free because that's the sort of definition of, that, of the semantics of, of first-order logic, right? It's not lexically scoped or anything, right? On the other hand, if you have like um, uh, the geospatial, geosciml stuff, and the, they actually track down the fact that this came from a geologist 40 years ago, and this one came from a geologist two, 20 years ago, that context has everything to do with the interpretation of that data. And so, literally modeling that, and that's so that's sort of both provenance and context. And what you just said there is a context there. It's like the review thing. There's kind of a typology of source. You know, is this a Flickr tagger? Is this a delicious tagger? Is this an early adopter geek head or is this a random mom doing a blog? And, and it, that affects the semantics of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm Susan, I'm sitting here thinking, to, to me, structure in this um, setting means agreement, and then it's the density of agreement. Uh, well, I would think it, 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 it's, it's almost uh, socialized. I mean, if you think of like a, a, like a formal uh, notational structure, to me that means there's uh, been some pretty significant socialization and agreement, in, in effect governance. I mean, and that's your, your strong governance. And I think of folksonomy as that sort of lighter, freer form. But in reality, if, if all of our work tools throughout our workday could be addressable by those URIs, I mean, think of the powerful ways that we would be working. And so they wouldn't be, you know, lightweight, you know, after hours in any way, shape, or form. It just so happens we're not able to sort of address all of our tools today to sync up and build the nets and so on.
I would just suggest that at some logical pause point, we might want to take a 10-minute break. We can fan off the room a little bit. And uh, it doesn't have to be right this minute, but... Um, yeah, I don't want to be pessimistic, but the the, the, the only issue I see with, with anything like this, like groundswell tagging or anything like that, are uh, two things, epistemological issues and maliciousness, uh, which maybe revolve around the same access. But uh, if uh, you see a bunch of people that you regard as cool and they're tagging something a certain way and you follow that, what if they, you know, led you down the road wrong way or they had a, a poor appreciation of something? So I don't think that's part of our framework here, but uh, uh, that's something I do see. So. Frank Holkin. Uh, it seems to me that my concern with folksonomies is, is there seem to be two separate issues. One is to what extent is the vocabulary controlled or structured or something like this? Uh, and it seems to be not, not at all. And the other is, what is the structure of the tags themselves? That is, my impression is that typically the tags are simply a concatenation of words, and it's unclear to me whether you can differentiate parts of speech or conjunctions or just, I mean, um, you can envision someone saying, well, it's either... Uh, a cat or a mountain lion, I'm not sure. Um, or you could say it is both a cat and a mountain. But in the normal vernacular of folksonomies and, and places tagging like delicious, I don't even see any, any, any um, differentiation between parts of speech. And now are, are they gradually getting more sophisticated so the people put in phrases or, or no? This is Thomas. Um, the description field is more is essentially where you're getting the um, you're getting phrases and other things within that. Um, the tagging is uh, within delicious. They are concatenating words, um, which has some issues as far as being able to pull them back apart. Um, and it's mostly sort of the early adopters who are embracing it and can understand it. Um, when you start showing delicious to people who are not early adopters, um, the concatenation of terms is really, really confusing. Um, but many of the other tools that are out there use comma-separated uh, quotations or um, have other means of uh, using multi-term tags. Um, but the flatness of it um, can be one of its values because you can say cat and you can say mountain lion. Um, and no matter which way you're coming at the, the question, you don't have to understand the hierarchy, which one comes first. You're like, oh, I think it's a cat. Um, or it's like, oh, I saw a mountain lion. It's like, oh, it's not come, you know, this incident isn't coming up. Let me, you know, let me add cat to this and uh, to do a Boolean or. And all of a sudden you're saying, oh, here's the, you know, the incident that happened in our town. And, oh, it was a panther. It wasn't a mountain lion. That's what they're calling it locally. Um, so it's... Um, because a lot of people, when they start thinking, regular people, when they start thinking in terms, they're thinking of a connection of terms and not necessary hierarchy. Um, and one of the sort of blasphemous statements I throw out is if we started with computing and not paper, would we have ever come up with hierarchy? Um, that's something to think about. Here's a good example of where an ontologist uh, gets to uh, help out the folks on them. We're, we're trying to axiomatize tags. 
we come to this use case that says, um, well, first we say the simple thing, which is they're just relational statements. They're just statement X tagged Y at by the, you know. Then you start saying, well, you know, some people want to do social search, which means you use social feedback to, to prevent spam as well. So you actually want to go vote negative. So it's another relational position for that. You can say, no, it doesn't really. So you got a little baby negation snuck itself in there. And then you have these other kind of distinctions where the fact is it's not really random that he he said it was a cat and mountain lion. He said it was a cat and mountain, at the, mountain lion at the same time. Okay. And then how do you handle that he changed his mind? Okay. What's the axiomatization of that? You mean bring in the whole frame problem again? You know, it gets pretty hairy pretty quickly. It's interesting. And so getting those things clear would make it possible for us to do interesting cross data set computation. And that's really where ontology really slots in. One last thing is the co-occurrence of tags is really important in the tagging systems. You don't have just, most often you don't have just one tag. So if somebody is saying football or cat, there's usually another term that's in there. Um, and somebody's saying cat, you know, and they'll name, name their cat or uh, cat and funny picture um, or cat and, um, you know, wilderness. And so you can start uh, deriving understanding uh, based on the co-occurrence of terms. And many times, uh, the more that people are tagging them on a period of time, the longer somebody's tagging, usually the more tags that they actually apply to things. Um, because it starts, they start realizing that they're not capturing all of what their understanding is or the different perspective and hats that they wear. Um, so if they want to actually refine that information, that's an important tool, they're going to be adding other perspectives, which then starts giving you a self-building and self-healing uh, healing thesaurus as well at the same time because you have um, different axes being considered and applied. Whether they're correct from um, the disciplines or not, um, you know, that can be debated and can be you know, by using other people on that use of the term. Um, you, know, you can start doing mathematics and computation to uh, start to derive meaning out of. But what we're building right now is essentially a really nice uh, base of natural language and natural thought. You can come back around to the top of the yeah, I, what, yeah, yeah, it's a, logistic, a couple of logistics questions before we break. Uh, one, uh, I need to find out uh, when we uh, <coughs> stop here so that I can call the uh, hotel shuttle to pick us up like half an hour before. We're nominally finishing at 5, but we could go a little later, probably drop dead by 6 if we had to. So I don't know what that implies. Then we have to make a decision at some point. It is. That's correct. Right. And then we'll come back with the right. decision. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Second question. We don't have a group function tonight. Do That's it. right. That's because we want people to be able to go off and work on stuff. You see tonight. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Got a plan. See you later. Ten minutes? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Yep.